Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. She was crying. I asked her, how's she doing? She, she was doing okay, but she was crying because her brother got killed. She watched him die. Yeah, she bought two of them died. They died in front of her. I got my daughter, and she's alive. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to CNN This Morning. We're glad you're with us. But we do begin with quite an update from Mexico and some tragic news. Two Americans are dead this morning. Two are alive, though. They are back on U.S. soil after those four were kidnapped at gunpoint in Mexico. We will break down where they were found and what we're learning about the man who has been detained. Later, the family of one of the survivors will also join us. And more exposure for Fox News. A trove of private text messages and emails have been revealed as part of a lawsuit against the network. What Tucker Carlson said about Donald Trump leading up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Also, a bipartisan group of senators are now trying to give President Biden more power to ban TikTok in the U.S. CNN This Morning starts right now. with that deadly kidnapping of four Americans in Mexico. Two of them have been found dead. The two survivors brought to the border in an ambulance protected by a heavily armed convoy of Mexican soldiers with Humvees and machine guns. Officials say the group of friends were on a road trip for a surgery procedure when they were caught up in a drug cartel shootout and abducted in broad daylight in one of Mexico's most violent and dangerous cities. Mexican officials say they were eventually found, they found in this wooden shack, look at that, guarded by a man. The local governor says the cartel moved the Americans around to different locations, including a medical clinic to create confusion and to try to avoid efforts to rescue them. This is an image of Latavia Washington McGee in the back of an ambulance after she was rescued. You see her right there. We will speak with her mother later. Rosa Flores starts us off in Brownsville, Texas, where the survivors are recovering. Rosa, thank goodness that two survived, that they're alive, but still two killed in this. And Mexican police have detained someone. They have, according to Mexican officials, they've detained a 24-year-old man from Tamaulipas, Mexico. They say that this man was doing some kind of surveillance on the Americans. Now, Mexican officials won't say and and won't disclose the affiliation of this individual. They won't say if he is related to the criminal organizations here. What Mexican officials do say is that they received a tip on Tuesday morning. They followed that tip and they found the Americans who were in Mexico getting this medical procedure What they didn't find were the kidnappers or the killers. Two Americans back on U.S. soil after a U.S. official says a case of mistaken identity left two of their friends dead. We're providing all appropriate assistance to them and their families. We extend our deepest condolences to the family and loved ones of the deceased. 
Latavia Washington McGee and Eric Williams are safe in receiving medical treatment in Texas. Zindel Brown and Shahid Woodard were killed in the attack. A U.S. official familiar with the investigation told CNN investigators believe a Mexican cartel kidnapped the group after mistaking them for Haitian drug smugglers. The deadly incident seen here in the surveillance video happened in the Mexican border city of Matamoros. Fue detenido en flagrancia. Authorities there announcing one person held and believed to be connected with the deadly kidnapping. The detained individual has been identified as 24-year-old Jose N. According to the governor of Tamaulipas, the individual kept watch on the captured victims. However, officials would not confirm whether the person is connected to a criminal organization. The incident revived the debate over violent crime in Mexico, drawing attention and some friction between the U.S. and Mexican governments. Ultimately, uh, we want to see accountability uh, for the violence that has been inflicted on these Americans that tragically uh, led to the death of two of them. We are not allowing any foreign country to intervene on matters that only relate to Mexicans. We do not get involved in seeing what the gangs in the United States distributing fentanyl are up to, or how the drug is distributed in the U.S. The sharp rebuke from the Mexican president before this admission. So, there is cooperation. We are working in a coordinated manner with a respect for sovereignty. A source familiar with the investigation told CNN the deceased will undergo autopsies by Mexican authorities prior to their remains being turned over to the U.S. government. Meanwhile, the Mexican president said those responsible will be found and punished. The White House is demanding accountability. Attacks on U.S. citizens are unacceptable no matter where or under what circumstances they happen. We will continue to work closely with the Mexican government to ensure justice is done in this case. Now, aside from the investigation that's going on in Mexico, the FBI is also conducting a criminal investigation. The FBI saying that they're working with the DEA, HSI, and the Department of State, as well as with their Mexican partners. Now, the FBI also saying that they have sent um, victims services personnel so they can help the victims and their families. And Poppy, the FBI is also working with the Department of State to recover the deceased to make sure that they can return to the United States and so they can reunite those individuals with their families. Of course, it's tragic. Rosa, thank you for the update. In the next hour, we are going to speak with the mother and the daughter of Latavia Washington McGee. Of course, she has six children. She is one of the two survivors of this. Also this morning, new texts have been released as part of Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News. They show some of the clearest indications yet that people inside the network had serious doubts and misgivings about the election fraud lies that were being openly touted on the network. A 2021 email reveals that the Fox Corporation chairman, Rupert Murdoch, conceded that two of his top hosts possibly, quote, went too far with the election denialism after Trump's loss. Though Murdoch himself also once said, according to these new texts, that he hoped Trump would win Arizona even after Fox's own decision desk, which makes those election calls, was the first to call it for President Biden. Murdoch saying at the time, quote, he was still hoping for AZ to prove them wrong. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now. Paula, these texts are pretty incredible when you look through what they show, what they were saying, you know, behind the scenes compared to what we saw publicly. 
Exactly, Caitlin. Quite the contrast. And all of this comes from these hundreds of pages of previously unreleased documents that we got last night. But clearly, some of the most damning revelations in these documents come from Fox chairman Rupert Murdoch. You see here, he is repeatedly denying conspiracy theories about Dominion voting systems that his own network was promoting. New internal communications from some of Fox News's most prominent figures show concerns and misgivings some had about then-President Donald Trump's claims of election fraud and the company's handling of the 2020 election results. According to court documents, host Tucker Carlson texted a producer on January 4, 2021, just two days before the Capitol attack. We are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. The conversation continues. Referring to Trump, Carlson says, I hate him passionately. I can't handle much more of this. The private communications from Carlson are a sharp contrast to his public support for the former president, as seen on his program that night. The president, as you may have heard, believes the election was stolen from him. Georgia's secretary of state, whose job it is to oversee elections, disagrees. You can listen to the call yourself. It's online and you can make up your own mind about who's right on that question. And by the way, if you have time, you ought to do that. The text messages are part of a trove of documents and communications released Tuesday from Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against the right-wing network. Fox responding to the latest document release in part saying Dominion has been caught red-handed using more distortions and misinformation in their PR campaign to smear Fox News and trample on free speech and freedom of the press. Dominion saying in a statement the emails, texts and deposition testimony speak for themselves. The communications reveal Fox Corporation Chairman Rupert Murdoch was furious Fox News called the 2020 election for Biden and wrote in an email to the former New York Post editor-in-chief, CNN declares and Fox coming in minutes. I hate our decision desk people and pollsters, some of the same people, I think, just for the hell of it, still praying for Arizona to prove them wrong, referring to Fox News' decision to project Biden the winner in Arizona. More than a month after the 2020 election, Fox News's D.C. managing editor wrote in a private message to a colleague he feared that the network's coverage of Trump's election fraud claims were becoming an existential crisis for the company. Murdoch conceded in an email to Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott in January 2021 that some of Fox's top talent went too far in their coverage. During his deposition, Murdoch asked, do you believe that Dominion was engaged in a massive and coordinated effort to steal the 2020 presidential election? Murdoch replied, no. Dominion has made an effort to show that Rupert Murdoch was hands-on. That is, that he was aware of what people were saying on his air, that he had the ability to stop these guests from appearing and repeating these things that he apparently testified he's never believed to be true. Both sides of this case have asked a judge to resolve this matter in their favor without going to trial. There's also a slim chance this could settle. But if none of that happens, this will go to trial in Delaware next month. And this will truly be a landmark case. Absolutely one to watch. Yeah, certainly. Paula Reed, thank you. Let's bring in now CNN's senior, CNN's media analyst uh, and Axios media reporter, Sarah Fisher. Sarah, good morning to you. Listen, uh, these text messages are 
between um, Tucker Carlson and, and, and what he wrote about Trump is amazing. I'm just going to read the entire text message because I think it's important and I, I don't want to uh, dumb it down here. It says, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. I hate him passionately. I blew up at Peter Navarro today in frustration. I actually like Peter, but I can't handle much more of this. That's the last four years. Um, we are pretending that we've got a lot to show for it because admitting what a disaster it's been, too tough to digest. But come on, this... There isn't really any upside to Trump. That's pretty harsh. It's from, very harsh. That's not what he's saying on the air. It's definitely not. And that's the point that that lawyer was just making. What Dominion is trying to prove is that Fox News hosts knowingly put stuff on the air that they didn't actually believe. And this comes to show that not only did Tucker Carlson not believe Trump, he didn't believe the election lies, but that he's in real time venting about it and frustrated about it, but then can completely pivot on air. It's actually a very strong case for Dominion. And I thought the other uh, piece of news that was brought out last night that was brought up in the clip that is a very strong case for them was Rupert Murdoch conceding no. Dominion did not, to his knowledge, mislead the public about the election. That is a direct piece of proof point for Dominion. What does it say about Fox overall? Because, you know, a lot of this concern and what was being said publicly was the fact that they were worried about losing viewers after the election. And, you know, Republicans in Washington, as well as I do, there is a deep mistrust at times of them. And to see a lot of Republicans coming out yesterday being so openly critical of some of the hosts that before they would never criticize was remarkable. Totally remarkable. You know, I'm kind of confused about this, you know, big fear around losing viewers. Fox, of all the three major cable news networks, CNN, MSNBC and Fox has always had high ratings. And so I don't think that they needed to pander to election lies to be able to manage their business. I think that they went completely off the wall there. But I also think to your point about Republicans, they do need to book them. They want to get them on their air. They want to get interviews with them. They want to be able to build them as exclusives. And that's not just the far right Republicans, but it's also House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It's also Senate, you know, Mitch, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell. And so they have he an incentive. very critical yesterday. Very critical yesterday of the decision by uh, Tucker Carlson to continue to sort of release misleading uh, footage from those January 6th tapes that McCarthy gave him. I think that Fox is in a very precarious position, though. The one thing I will say, if we take, though, a 30,000-foot view, they're in a precarious position about this lawsuit. But their shareholders have not really come down on them. It's not like Fox's stock is taking a huge beating because of this. At the end of the day, they're going to be frustrated if they lose, you know, $1.6 billion or more to this defamation suit when it could have gone towards sports rights for Fox Sports. Like, they just signed Tom Brady for $375 million. But it's not like the shareholders are demanding critical action at this moment. Uh, it's just... The idea, I know it's a reality, but that shareholders really are the ones that kind of are really have the strongest say in what a news organization puts out there is just really sad. Do we have time to listen to, because I think it was important that you guys mentioned what happened with Republicans yeah, yesterday. Can we, let's, let's listen to what they said. This was um, about January 6th and what Tucker Carlson said. It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol, thanks. To, to somehow put that in the same category as a you know, permitted peaceful protest is, um, is just a lie. I think it's bullshit. There were a lot of people uh, in the Capitol at the time who uh, I think um, were scared for their lives. So uh, you can, you know, however you want to describe it, but it was, uh, it was an attack on the Capitol. I thought it was an insurrection at that time. I still think it was an insurrection today. The point is, what happened that day shouldn't have happened. Hmm. And it's 
Shouldn't Fox News be listening to, well, what is right for journalism, that they should course, report yes. to, their, to the viewers mm -hmm. exactly what happened, to the lawmakers? But then, as you said, shareholders, you know, that reminder to us. What do you make of that? I mean, I know for a fact that folks inside Fox think that Trump is something they want to get away from. So I'm surprised that Tucker Carlson is even doubling down on this in this way, because Republicans clearly want to get away from Trump. He caused them the midterm last election. And Fox News clearly wants to get away from Trump. I think they would be wise, to your point, to listen to them. I don't know why they're not. Well, they have distanced themselves from Trump, I think, since he announced his, his reelect. It's come to great frustration to the Trump campaign. The lawmakers are Fox, you mean? Fox. Fox. Um, yeah, but, you know, painting January 6th in this light is not distancing yourself from Trump. It's actually the most intense thing you could do to relink yourself to Donald Trump. And so I just can't understand or fathom why they would do it, to your point, if every single one of these Republican lawmakers, both from the most, some of the most extreme ends and some of the more moderate ends, is distancing themselves. Sarah Fisher, thank you very much. I appreciate thank that. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, today is International Women's Day, and throughout the show this morning, we'll spotlight the hard-fought battles of women, many of those battles continuing across the globe. First, let's take you to Ukraine. I'm Elisabel in Kyiv, where this International Women's Day is being marked with all the more solemnity for the war, a war that has changed so much in what was a relatively patriarchal society. The number of women signing up to the army since the invasion began last February, going to 50,000 from the 30,000 it had been. And also, of course, all the women who've had to pick up the jobs in the mines, the fields, the factories that the men left behind, even as they continue to carry the burden of looking after their families in the middle of a war. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be, to be higher than previously anticipated. Quite a day for the economy. This morning, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell will be back on the Hill after that testimony yesterday, telling senators we should all brace for higher interest rates that are going to stay higher for longer. Wall Street did not like that. Shops, stocks closed sharply lower. And Senator Elizabeth Warren cert certainly didn't like his comments either. Listen to this exchange. Chair Powell, if you hit your projections, do you know how many people who are currently working, going about their lives, will lose their jobs? I don't, uh, I don't have that number in front of me. I will say it's, it's not, it's it's not just an intended consequence. It's well, not but it is, and it's in your report, and that would be about 2 million people who would lose their jobs. If you could speak directly to the 2 million hardworking people who have decent jobs today, who you're planning to get fired over the next year, what would you say to them? I would explain to people more broadly that that inflation is extremely high and it's hurting the working people of this country badly. All of them, not just two million of them, but all of them are suffering under high inflation. And we are taking the, the only measures we have to bring inflation down. Yeah, the only tool they have. Christine Romans, our chief business correspondent, is here. One thing that wasn't in that cut that was interesting that Powell said 
is maybe we could do it without firing all these right. people getting fired. It could be with there being less job openings. Yeah, and that would be the best outcome yeah. right here. But the idea here is the job market is just so strong and it's going to spin off inflation. And that's what the Fed is really worried about. Look, this means something for every American here, whether you're talking about your job or you're talking about all these ways that higher interest rates are going to affect you. And I want to just look at the, the mortgage market, for example. Uh, 30-year fixed rate mortgages are indirectly tied to these Federal uh, Reserve rate hikes. And you've already seen mortgage rates rising here. You're paying about $700 more a month in interest on a typical mortgage today, a new mortgage today, than you would have if you'd got that mortgage last year. On credit card interest rates, those are at record highs here. 19% for a typical credit card interest rate. This bears repeating, you guys. If you are putting money on a card and not paying it off, you will spend a long time and a lot of money to get out from underneath uh, that debt. So that's a really important part here, too. And now in savings rates, you're seeing a little bit money. Eventually, you might get a little bit more by having your money in a certificate of deposit or in a savings account. That has lagged, I'm going to say, sadly. Um, but eventually, saving money because of these higher rates could be a little more uh, advantageous. It's just not happening quite yet. But you will feel higher rates in just about everything. And the Fed is signaling higher rates for longer here. Right. So higher rates because the economy is so strong. But doesn't this just signal a declining confidence in the Fed's ability to be able to, to touch it? inflation to be able to bring it down. And that's really one of the worries here. The Fed only has that one big tool, and that is raising those interest rates. They've done it eight times. How come inflation is still above 6%? How come the job market is still so strong? How come consumers are still uh, so flush with cash and still spending so robustly? You have underlying strength in this economy that means the Fed has to move harder to get these interest rates higher so that uh, they can cool down the economy. And that could throw the economy into a recession. It's a very, very dangerous and delicate balance that the Federal Reserve is trying to do. And I think what we heard from the Fed chief yesterday is that this economy has been stronger than they thought. It really has been. And we're going to hear a lot more information over the next week to 10 days that um, could, I think, really rattle markets and rattle that confidence in whether the Fed is, has done the, done the right thing uh, at the right time here. Yeah, feels like that 2% inflation target is just so far away. Further, further away. It's so far away. Christine Romans, thank you. Nice to see you guys. It's like they're extending it, but we'll see. Thank you. Let's talk about TikTok now. Viral TikTok dances like this. Money don't there. jiggle, jiggle. I thought you were going to do one. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do one. Could be in jeopardy. The popular social media platform now facing the threat of being banned in the United States. We're going to tell you why. Now I'm going to have that song stuck in my head yeah, me too. all day. <laughs> okay. right? It's the, the ultimate era. Look at my tie. It's like TikTok trends. Okay, so TikTok trends like that Beyonce cuppet dance, that challenge could soon be a thing of the past. You know why? The White House now backing a new bipartisan Senate bill that could potentially ban TikTok, citing national security concerns about the popular Chinese-owned video app. It uh, is used by more than 100 million Americans, including my sister who's watching, who's saying... You can't ban TikTok. No, please don't do it. Melanie Zanona, Zanona, live on Capitol Hill this morning. Good morning to you. This does have bipartisan support. So what does it look like? Yeah, good morning to you, Don. I also am going to have that song stuck in my head, and I was doing the dance, so thank you very much. Uh, but this bill is just the latest proposal on Capitol Hill to threaten TikTok's future 
in the United States. So the Restrict Act is being sponsored by Democratic Senator Mark Warner, who heads the Intelligence Committee, and Republican Senator John Thune, a member of the GOP leadership team. Now, their bill would not ban TikTok outright, but it would create a new process for the government to both evaluate and potentially take action against foreign technology companies if they have a presence in the United States and if there is a security risk. And indeed, with TikTok, the intelligence community has determined there are risks to American data. There are concerns that the Chinese are using the app for surveillance purposes. That is why President Joe Biden's security advisor said the president does support this bill. But Don, even with the bipartisan support on Capitol Hill and even with Biden's backing, the proponents of the bill acknowledge it is probably going to be very difficult to persuade those 100 million Americans like your sister who use the app and aren't convinced of the national security risks. And meanwhile, you have some lawmakers who say the bill doesn't go far enough and they are pushing for a full-on ban. Done. So what is TikTok saying? Well, TikTok, of course, is pushing back aggressively. A spokesperson for the company said this is going to stifle American speech. But, you know, that has not stopped policymakers from seeking tougher actions against the company. Don. All right. Melanie Zanona, thank you very much. All right. Ahead for us. Gender equity is good economics. That is what the head of the International Monetary Fund, Chief. Kristalina Georgieva told us ahead of today, which is International Women's Day, our sit down with her about the global economy and her push for women. That's ahead. Also this morning, we had the latest on the deaths of two Americans in Mexico and how it's put the spotlight on the risks of medical tourism. Our health team is going to take a look at just how common it actually really is, but also how dangerous it could be. I'm Selena Wang in Beijing. China's rapid modernization means women have made huge economic and educational gains in recent decades, but Xi Jinping is taking China back into a patriarchal direction. Under Xi, the highest echelons of power are all men. Gender-based workplace discrimination is rampant. Major wage gaps remain. As China struggles with record low birth rates, women are now being pressured into taking on more traditional roles and to have more babies. Rights activists say public and domestic violence against women have become disturbing common while the legal system is stacked against women. Meanwhile, the Communist Party repeatedly silences and cracks down on feminists. Selena Wang in Beijing, thank you for that. Today is International Women's Day. Through the show, we're highlighting the challenges women are facing across the globe. We also want to highlight, though, uh, a global leader who is pushing for economic inclusion and empowerment of women. Kristalina Georgieva is the head of the International Monetary Fund. The IMF has 200 member countries working together trying to stabilize the global economy. It's been called the world's financial crisis firefighter with a pool of a trillion dollars to bail out those countries if needed. So I sat down with the IMF chief to talk about a lot, recession fears, Ukraine. But we began with International Women's Day. I don't have to tell you, traditionally, it's been men in positions of power like yours. But now we have more women. We have you. We have U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. We have European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde. How does that reality now finally change the reality for women around the world? Having more women in position of authority brings more diversity in decision making. And the result is we make better decisions. Um, I uh, still uh, recognize that we have a long way to go, Poppy. Uh, today, only 5% of CEOs of big companies are women, 
and uh, we want to see more of this coming uh, in the years ahead. Gender equality is good economics. Uh, labor market participation of women has gone up, but it is way below uh, labor market participation of men. And what is the result? We lose growth and uh, society is poorer. Just to give you the number, if we get women to participate in the labor market at par with men, the global GDP is going to be 20% bigger. So imagine what we can do with 20% more that we collectively produce and then can enjoy. You know, I think about this also in the context of you as the leader of the IMF, because you're also the first managing director of the IMF who grew up behind the Iron Curtain. You grew up in Bulgaria, you grew up under communism, and you've talked about the real impact on ordinary people of bad policies. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if you are seeing that play out now. Uh, I see it uh, day in, day out in so many countries where poor policies punish people and who suffers the most? It is the most vulnerable women always taking the brunt of those uh, uh, poor policies. I remember as a young mother getting up at four o'clock in the morning to go and queue to buy milk for my daughter. And I know that in many, many societies, mm -hmm. If only we allow women to have a stronger voice in decision-making, so much better would be the road ahead. So let's talk about the global economy. Don, Caitlin, and I on the show all the time talk about how confusing all of these economic indicators are. Such a strong labor market. The Fed moves are not getting a handle on inflation. There's real concerns about if we're headed into a, a, a recession, both in Europe and the United States. What do you see? Uh, what I see is uh, uh, one, indeed, a positive surprise in terms of resilience of the economies, both the US and Europe, uh, and especially the resilience of the labor market. Also, Europe surprised us, and it surprised itself, with the speed with which it frees its economy from dependency on Russian oil and gas. All of this contributes positively to our prospects for growth. So we don't see global recession in the cards for this year. We do see, however, growth slowing down uh, from 3.4% last year to 2.9% this year. Good news on the labor market front, not so good on the inflation right. uh, fighting side. If we don't have price stability, we cannot have strong foundation for reviving growth. What does that mean you believe Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell should do? Stay the course. Uh, be data dependent as he has been so far and keep driving inflation down. Uh, we think it might take a little longer. Uh, so higher for longer when it comes down to interest rates, uh, maybe what we experienced this year. Your advice to the U.S. Federal Reserve is higher interest rates than expected and holding them higher for longer. 
how can the result of that not be a recession? We still believe that there is a narrow path to avoid recession uh, by being uh, very careful in how the fight against inflation goes forward. There are also major headwinds potentially to the U.S. economy that are self-inflicted, right? There's a big question about, and you've talked about, whether the U.S. Congress is about to shoot itself in the foot vis-a-vis -vis the debt ceiling. You were just with Janet Yellen at the G20 in India. She warned of a global financial crisis. If essentially Congress doesn't do its job and address the debt ceiling, do you have a warning to both Democrats and Republicans in Congress right now? We have to be very uh, watchful on uh, issues that can affect the world economy today. Why? Because it is a difficult time for the world, uh, Poppy. Adding more uncertainty to what is already highly uncertain environment, uh, not the way uh, to go. And uh, knowing that the dollar is uh, the world's preferred reserve currency, that financial stability globally depends on stability in uh, the dollar markets uh, means that we, we have to be all extra uh, careful. But if we take history as our guide, it tells us that in the end, the solution is found. Before we go, just a, a few questions on Russia and Ukraine. You have you just met last month with President Zelensky. Um, and we should note you, your experience with this is also very personal, given your brother was in Kharkiv during the Russian invasion. You have been warning the world that we may be, in your words, sleepwalking into a new Cold War. It is uh, uh, first uh, very important to recognize that uh, Ukraine is fighting not only for its existence, it is fighting for rule of law in the world, without which it is very hard to imagine prosperous society. But also we have to be concerned about the direction we are taking as a global community. A more fragmented world, one in which blocks trade with each other is a poorer world and one that is less secure. So interesting to see her say she thinks Powell should stay the course. Absolutely. She has no question about raising rates higher, keeping them longer is what you have to do. What I am so fascinated by with her as a leader is that she's lived it. We talked a little bit about growing up in Bulgaria under communism and the, the impact of bad policies and bad decision making, what that it has on real ordinary people and the poorest among us. So that's her warning. Yeah, I was thinking the whole time. Oh. Is that so many other countries have had women as world leaders, as leaders, I should say, and we haven't. You know, we have leaders in other, but not as president of the United States. And we yeah, be, it's yeah. unique, right, that you've yeah. got her, Janet Yellen, and Christine Lagarde now. Yeah. Hasn't been like that in economics either. Yeah. Yeah. So we have some new details about the death of two Americans in Mexico after they were kidnapped at gunpoint. We're going to go live to the Texas border town where the survivors are recovering, plus the date on medical tourism. That's next. The latest now on the kidnappings of those four Americans in Mexico. Two of them survived and are back in the U.S. this morning, but sadly, the other two died. CNN is learning that they were traveling across the border so that one of them could undergo cosmetic surgery. It's part of a trend called medical tourism. More than a million Americans travel abroad for medical procedures each year. 
CNN Health reporter Jacqueline Howard joins us now. Good morning, Jacqueline. Uh, why are so many uh, Americans getting this medical care out of the country? Is it simply a cost thing? Don, cost definitely has a play, a role to play in this, but there are also other reasons as well. It can range from cost to they might be seeking a procedure or treatment that's approved outside of the U.S., but not approved here. And then also there's the wait time. Someone might be on, for instance, an organ transplant list and the wait is shorter outside the U.S. So all of that plays a role and it's definitely connected with what kind of procedure or treatment the person is looking for. So the most common types of medical care that people seek outside of the U.S. include dental care, cosmetic surgeries, even uh, fertility treatments or cancer care. And Don, this is on the rise. So one study says that in 2007, fewer than 800,000 people traveled internationally from the U.S. for medical care. But by 2017, that number rose to more than 1 million Americans. So this is a growing trend really right before our eyes, Don. So what happened here, though, is highlighting the dangers uh, of that. We know that it is rare for medical tourists to be kidnapped like what happened to that group in Mexico, but there are other risks. Right. There are definitely medical risks. So, of course, with the group in Mexico, we saw that they traveled to an area high in crime. So that's a risk when it comes to travel itself. But when we're looking specifically at the medical risks with medical tourism, there's the risk of infection. You're risking quality of care. There also could be communication challenges with the medical staff. And then the risk of continuing care. If something goes wrong, what do you do? And there are steps you can take to minimize risk risk, like obtain international travel health insurance. But overall, Don, these are risks that people need to keep in mind. Bring copies of health records with you, research your medical provider and the medical facility. So all of that plays a role, Don. Jacqueline Howard, thank you. Also this morning, Oklahoma voters did not just say no to legalizing recreational marijuana. They rejected it by a huge margin. What does that mean for the nationwide push for legalization? We'll tell you next. In a new exclusive interview, CNN sat down with U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, to talk about the U.S.-Japan alliance, China, and the geopolitics of that region that are at the forefront of what's happening in the world. It comes after the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, took a rare swipe at the United States and its policy, saying it is to blame for the recent challenges that are facing China. CNN's Mark Stewart is live in Tokyo with more this morning. Mark, what did you hear from the ambassador? Hi, Caitlin. Good morning. Look, if you talk to the ambassador, it is clear that he feels there are some boundaries. He clearly feels that Japan is an ally, yet portrays China as an adversary. Take a listen to part of our conversation from earlier today from the ambassador's residence here in Tokyo. China is going to have to realize if you want to be a respected, which is what they want, leader of the world, you have to actually respect the people you're interlocking with. You cannot constantly have one, two, one hammer. That is, they have had a confrontation or near confrontation with multiple countries in the region consistently. And, and those remarks come as China accuses the U.S. of trying to orchestrate a NATO-style alliance here in Asia, Caitlin. 
And what about the, what did he say just broadly about his time on the ground there in Tokyo, about the relationship between the U.S. and Japan? Obviously, President Biden has visited there, but what is he was, what was he saying about it now? Well, this is an interesting time for Japan. This is a government that has a constitution that is rooted in peacekeeping and pacifism. Yet, over the last few months, we've seen it really double down on its military spending. Part of many shifts in this region, which she gives credit to President Biden for. Uh, take a listen to that. He has brought a level of energy and, uh, to alliances and to allies that was absent. Uh, that has given our allies confidence, like Japan, to increase the defense budget, to be more active on the diplomatic uh, arena and stage. Finally, the ambassador does not feel that diplomacy is dead. He is pointing to a recent agreement between Japan and South Korea to basically resolve a longtime labor dispute that goes back many, many decades. It's a dispute that has had economic, social, political, and economic repercussions for this entire region, Caitlin. Yeah, and we should note that comes as South Korea is getting the next state dinner at the White House as well. Mark Stewart, thank you so much. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. To somehow put that in the same category as a, you know, permitted peaceful protest is, um, is just a lie. I think it's bullshit. There were a lot of people uh, in the Capitol at the time who uh, I think um, were scared for their lives. So you can, you know, however you want to describe it. But it was, a, it was an attack on the Capitol. I thought it was an insurrection at that time. I still think it was an insurrection today. So why don't you tell us how you really feel? Yeah. I thought it was, do you know what he said? Well, right. they were there that day, so it changes your perspective it. if you were actually in Washington when that happened. Yeah, but what's the picture that many Americans are getting from watching Tucker Carlson? That is the question. Is it an accurate one? Good morning, everyone. Welcome. So Fox News host Tucker Carlson facing major blowback from Democrats and Republicans after he aired selective footage of the January 6th attack on the Capitol and made the absurd claim that most of the rioters were peaceful sightseers. We are going to like a sightseer. No, because it wasn't right. So we're going to show you these new a trove of new private text messages and emails from inside of Fox News. Some of the biggest names there. They're all revealed in this new lawsuit. We're also getting an inside look at the internal crisis over Fox News's coverage of election conspiracies and what Tucker Carlson really thinks about President Trump. We're also following the latest updates in the deadly kidnapping of four Americans in Mexico. Two of them were found dead. The other two are alive and back in the United States this morning. We'll have more for you. CNN This Morning starts right now. But we're going to begin with this. We begin this hour with the deadly kidnapping of those four Americans in Mexico. Two of them found dead. The two survivors brought to the border in an ambulance protected by a heavily armed convoy of Mexican soldiers with Humvees and machine guns. Officials say the group of friends were on a road trip for a cosmetic surgery procedure when they were caught up in a drug cartel shootout and abducted in broad daylight in one of Mexico's most violent and dangerous cities. Mexican officials say they were eventually found in this wooden shack, guarded by a man. 
The local governor says that the cartel moved the Americans around to different locations, including a medical clinic to create confusion and avoid efforts to rescue them. This is an image of Latavia Washington McGee in the back of an ambulance after her rescue. Rosa Flores is in Brownsville, Texas for us this morning where the survivors are recovering. Good morning to you, Rosa. Mexican police have detained a person in connection with the kidnapping. What do you know? Don, good morning. Yes, Mexican officials saying that they have apprehended a 24-year-old man from Tamaulipas, Mexico, who is conducting surveillance on the Americans. Now, the Mexican officials will not say if this individual is linked to criminal organizations in the area. What Mexican officials will say is that the kidnappers moved the Americans around several times and that on Tuesday morning they received a tip, they followed that tip that led to the Americans, but not to those responsible for the kidnapping or the killing. Two Americans back on U.S. soil after a U.S. official says a case of mistaken identity left two of their friends dead. We're providing all appropriate assistance to them and their families. We extend our deepest condolences to the family and loved ones of the deceased. Latavia Washington McGee and Eric Williams are safe in receiving medical treatment in Texas. Zindel Brown and Shahid Woodard were killed in the attack. A U.S. official familiar with the investigation told CNN investigators believe a Mexican cartel kidnapped the group after mistaking them for Haitian drug smugglers. The deadly incident seen here in the surveillance video happened in the Mexican border city of Matamoros. Authorities there announcing one person held and believed to be connected with the deadly kidnapping. The detained individual has been identified as 24-year-old Jose N. According to the governor of Tamaulipas, the individual kept watch on the captured victims. However, officials would not confirm whether the person is connected to a criminal organization. The incident revived the debate over violent crime in Mexico, drawing attention and some friction between the U.S. and Mexican governments. Ultimately, uh, we want to see accountability uh, for the violence that has been inflicted on these Americans that tragically uh, led to the death of two of them. We are not allowing any foreign country to intervene on matters that only relate to Mexicans. We do not get involved in seeing what the gangs in the United States distributing fentanyl are up to or how the drug is distributed in the U.S. The sharp rebuke from the Mexican president before this admission. So, there is cooperation. We are working in a coordinated manner with a respect for sovereignty. A source familiar with the investigation told CNN the deceased will undergo autopsies by Mexican authorities prior to their remains being turned over to the U.S. government. Meanwhile, the Mexican president said those responsible will be found and punished. The White House is demanding accountability. Attacks on U.S. citizens are unacceptable no matter where or under what circumstances they happen. We will continue to work closely with the Mexican government to ensure justice is done in this case. The building that you see behind me is the hospital where the American survivors were brought for the initial evaluation and also for medical treatment. And Don, the survivor that was not injured, according to Mexican officials, is Latavia Washington McGee and our affiliate WPBE 
spoke to her mom uh, from the hospital bed. And, and they say that uh, Washington McKee uh, was shaken. She was crying, as you might imagine, is still distraught by what she experienced. And also because she says that she witnessed her two friends die. So just unimaginable and intense dramatic moments for this family. Don. Rosa Flores, thank you very much. Also this morning, the latest on the lawsuit against Fox News. These quotes that we're getting from text overnight. Quote, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. Another one, I hate him passionately. One more, we are all officially working for an organization that hates us. Those are quotes from the most prominent host at Fox News. They were released as part of Dominion's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit that show some of the clearest indications we've seen yet that people inside the network, many of them had serious doubts and misgivings about the election fraud lies that were being openly touted on the network. CNN's Paula Reed is covering this. Paula, these texts are, are remarkable and just give an indication of the questions of what the former president's relationship with, with Fox is going to be like going forward. You're right, Caitlin. It's incredible. If you look at these hundreds of pages of previously unreleased documents, what you see is a network that is embracing these conspiracy theories amid concerns about declining ratings. So even though behind the scenes they are slamming these conspiracy theories, uh, slamming Trump himself, on air you see them promoting both because there is this constant concern about the bottom line. New internal communications from some of Fox News' most prominent figures show concerns and misgivings some had about then-President Donald Trump's claims of election fraud and the company's handling of the 2020 election results. According to court documents, host Tucker Carlson texted a producer on January 4th, 2021. We are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. The conversation continues. Referring to Trump, Carlson says, I hate him passionately. I can't handle much more of this. The private communications from Carlson are a sharp contrast to his public support for the former president as seen on his program that night. The president, as you may have heard, believes the election was stolen from him. Georgia's secretary of state, whose job it is to oversee elections, disagrees. You can listen to the call yourself. It's online and you can make up your own mind. The text messages are part of a trove of documents and communications released Tuesday from Dominion Voting Systems' $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against the right-wing network. Fox responding to the latest document release in part saying Dominion has been caught red handed using more distortions and misinformation in their PR campaign to smear Fox News and trample on free speech and freedom of the press. Dominion saying in a statement the emails, texts and deposition testimony speak for themselves. The communications reveal Fox Corporation Chairman Rupert Murdoch was furious Fox News called the 2020 election for Biden and wrote in an email to the former New York Post editor-in-chief, CNN declares and Fox coming in minutes. I hate our decision desk people and pollsters, some of the same people, I think. More than a month after the 2020 election, Fox News's D.C. managing editor wrote in a private message to a colleague he feared that the network's coverage of Trump's election fraud claims were becoming an existential crisis for the company. Murdoch conceded in an email to Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott in January 2021 that some of Fox's top talent went too far in their coverage. 
During his deposition, Murdoch asked, do you believe that Dominion was engaged in a massive and coordinated effort to steal the 2020 presidential election? Murdoch replied, no. Dominion has made an effort to show that Rupert Murdoch was hands-on, that is, that he was aware of what people were saying on his air, that he had the ability to stop these guests from appearing and repeating these things. Both sides have asked a judge to resolve the case in their favor without going to trial. But if that doesn't happen, this case will go to court in Delaware. A trial is expected to last about six weeks, beginning next month. Is there any chance they could settle? I, I imagine that's probably what a lot of people whose texts are coming out are thinking about right now. Paula, what do you think? What's your sense? You make a great point, Caitlin, and there is certainly a chance that this could settle, but there's no sign right now that any settlement is in the works. I mean, Dominion is asking for $1.6 billion. If they settle, they could settle for an amount much less than that. But if this goes to a jury, the jury could always award something higher. It's a calculus uh, for the companies right now. Usually defamation is very difficult to prove, actual malice, that they knew what they were saying was false. But most legal experts who review the evidence that we were just reporting on, they say, look, this is a pretty strong case. You have multiple Fox News personalities and executives admitting that they knew that what they were saying on air was just not true. So this is an incredibly ca strong case for sure. Unclear how it'll pan out, but this is significant. I mean, this is one that the country is going to be watching, not just, you know, folks like you and me, legal nerds like Poppy and I. This is a huge case for hey, the country and the limits of the First Amendment. Uh, Don, if you're a legal nerd, it has not revealed itself to me yet, but call me. I'd love to, I'd love to talk legal stuff anytime. I can't wait. I'm just going to bug him all day with legalese. Yeah. Have you seen these glasses? Come on. I have. I have. <laughs> to, to Paul, your point, Paul, I'm obsessed with this case and totally fascinated big picture about what it yeah, does. Yeah, this could be precedent. Totally. So, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay, we'll thanks. watch it closely. We know you will as well, Paula. Thank you. All right, let's talk about what is happening in the skies and at our airports, right, guys? This morning on Capitol Hill, the acting administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration will face congressional lawmakers against the backdrop of six major runway incidents and near misses already this year. Pete Muntean is with us from Washington. So Billy Nolan, he's still acting. They have not permanently filled this position yet. Uh, and that's another story. So Billy Nolan, the acting administrator, came before the Senate panel last month after those system outages, now he's there again. What are you expecting? Well, lawmakers really have the chance to press him here on what is happening with these close calls on the runway <laughs> ahead of this safety summit that the FAA announced for next week. Let's just look at the timeline here. We're averaging about one of these incidents every 10 days. We just heard of another one on Monday. Uh, we got JFK, Honolulu, Austin, Sarasota, Burbank, Boston. This is the chance where lawmakers could really ask, what is the issue here? Is it a problem with the FAA or is it a problem at the airlines? And I want you to listen now to FAA Acting Administrator Billy Nolan in announcing that safety summit during his last appearing on the Hill, where he said, we just cannot become complacent in the aviation system because so much is on the line. Listen. I can say without reservation that the aviation professionals who comprise the American aerospace industry are proud of our safety record, but we all know that complacency has no place in air transportation, whether it's on the flight deck, in the control tower, the ramp, or the dispatch center. 
I spoke with a representative from the American Airlines Pilot Union, Captain Dennis Tager. He'll appear on CNN this morning later today. He told me that this is just symptomatic of all the problems that the aviation system has seen lately with so many retirements, so many new pilots coming in, so much operational pressure from the airlines. And now it's being shown up in the aviation system. We're seeing all of these close calls, Poppy. We are. But are they more or are we hearing about them more from great reporters like you? Is it really happening more? This is something I've been digging in on, and yeah. I asked uh, NTSB Chair Jennifer Hamandi about this, and she told me she's happy there's a greater spotlight on these issues. She feels like these are happening in greater number, although the good news here is that because of the headlines, because of the attention on this, that could cause a greater change in safety. So we are seeing more of these incidents that are more egregious. Some of them are bigger than others. The JFK and Austin incidents, those are really the severe ones, although we're learning of some also where the planes really may have not been all that close to one another. So there is a high number of runway incursions overall nationwide, although the big question is why are these severe ones happening with such a greater number? And that is what's really concerning, Bobby. That is a critical question. Pete, thanks for the reporting. So the headline of the Oklahoman this morning, take a look at this. The state votes down proposal to legalize recreational marijuana and the measure would have allowed anyone over the age of 21 to purchase and possess up to one ounce of marijuana. Supporters of the measure argued legalization would bring in millions in new tax revenue because there would, be, there would have been a 15% state sales tax. But critics say it would have led to a rise in crime and violence and put children in harm's way. The vote comes almost five years after Oklahomans voted in favor of legalizing medical marijuana. This is just the latest failure for legalization advocates. Voters in Arkansas, South Dakota, North Dakota defeated weed referendums in November. Maryland and Missouri approved them. So there you go. If you have been interested in this, you've been talking about it, and you, with kids, are concerned about it hasn't, it hasn't been tested enough. There's not enough research. I don't, I don't know the research. What do, you, what do you think? Well, I mean, I don't have an opinion on it, but yeah. I do think, you know, what you've heard from the people who are organized behind this say it's not a question of if but when, so they are going to yeah. push for it again. I mean, Oklahoma did approve medical marijuana about five years yeah. ago, I think, and you've seen some states have taken it up. It's become very popular, and some have rejected it. Yeah. I also think alcohol has to be part of the conversation you just, I don't have to say anything. You know, you do, yeah, because like, alcohol could be much, much worse. People have absolutely. bigger issues with alcohol as of now, but the research that we have now. Yeah, but yes, I think about it all differently when I think about my kids, but I think about it with alcohol too, so. Yeah, I just know walking around New York City, you can barely there, go outside smell. without smelling marijuana. It's true. it's true. But it's legal now. It's true. All right, also this morning, our own Wolf Blitzer just interviewed the Ukrainian President Zelensky. He asked him this key question. How worried are you about this trend among some Republicans that it could threaten the flow of support to Ukraine? Find out what Zelensky's answer was next. Wolf is going to join us here live with his exclusive interview. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. We are hearing from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in a brand new interview with our very own Wolf Blitzer. Zelensky making the case for continued bipartisan support of Ukraine right here in the United States. Watch this. 
House uh, Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House of Representatives here in Washington, Kevin McCarthy says he supports Ukraine, but doesn't support what he calls a blank check, a blank check for Ukraine. That criticism is being echoed by former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, possible leading contenders for the Republican presidential nomination. How worried are you, President Zelensky? How worried are you about this trend among some Republicans that it could threaten the flow of support to Ukraine? No, Firstly, I would like to thank um, the bipartisan uh, support of Ukraine. It's very important. Recently, I had a, a meeting with the representatives of the uh, Republican Party, and I'm uh, thankful to a, a congressman who visited uh, Ukraine. They they told me that they want to support um, Ukraine uh, very much like the Democrats. We don't want to slow down. We have a different approach. We want to give more. And now, but not dragging it forever. That was their signal. We don't care about the uh, support, uh, the science support, as long as it's powerful and constant. I think that uh, Speaker McCarthy, he never visited uh, Kiev or Ukraine. And uh, I think it would uh, help him with his position. When you come to us, when the uh, Democrats and Republicans come to us, they see the supply uh, routes, every shell, every bullet, every Every dollar, uh, Mr. McCarthy, he has to come here to see how we work, what's happening here, what war caused us, which uh, people are fighting now, who fighting now, uh, and then after that, uh, make your assumptions. So let's bring in CNN's anchor of the Situation Room, Wolf Blitzer. His full interview with President Zelensky airs tonight, a special 9 p.m. Eastern hour. Wolf, uh, I can't wait to see the rest of it. I think my first question to you is, how confident or not does he actually feel that this new Congress will continue supporting Ukraine at the level that the United States has been? He was, he was in, in speaking with me, he was very confident about what he has seen so far. There have been several bipartisan congressional delegations that have actually come to Kiev, visited Ukraine, and he says he gets that kind of uh, positive reaction from Democrats and Republicans. He's very encouraged, but he did go out of his way to invite this, the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, to come to Ukraine, as you just heard. He wants Kevin McCarthy to come and see what's going on. He feels that anyone who comes to Ukraine and sees the devastation, sees what the Russians have been doing to residential apartment buildings in, in throughout the country, uh, and sees the devastation that it has caused for the people of Ukraine, what the Russians are doing, he says that they will then come back to the United States and support continued military and economic assistance for Ukraine, which is so important. He would love McCarthy to come visit, although McCarthy, uh, at least so far, has declined. Right. Yeah, McCarthy seemed to say he'll, he's getting briefings. He doesn't have to go to Kiev to see it, to understand what's going on. Zelensky seemed to be making the argument, though, that you know, if you go there, you do see how they are tracking what the U.S. is sending in these massive amounts. I thought what he said was interesting, Wolf, though, is he said Republicans, uh, what they told him was, we want to give more now, but not drag it out forever. That is a popular remark among Republicans, that it is not something that can, ha can go on you know, in entirety and perpetuity. It was clear to me, uh, Caitlin, that he is following 
all the nuances of what Republicans and Democrats, what the Biden administration is saying, what the Republican opposition is saying here in Washington. He's very well plugged in on all of the, the nuances of what's going on. And he's very sensitive to it because he fully appreciates that the, the Ukrainians need extensive U.S. military and economic support. And he made that pitch when President uh, Biden visited Kiev uh, not that long ago. He made that pitch. The Ukrainians, they need these fighter jets. They need these longer range missiles. He says that will do the job and the Ukrainians can still win this war if the U.S. and the other NATO allies, for example, step up and continue to help Ukraine. I was just sitting there when, when we were playing the clip, Wolf. I just wanted to hear more. I can't wait to yeah. hear more tonight. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it was a very powerful interview. He was very blunt. He didn't mince any words at all. Uh, and he made the case uh, of what, and he was so appreciative of what the United States has done for Ukraine. Uh, and, and what the, the visit by Biden alone, he said, it really encouraged the people of Ukraine. Uh, it gave them hope that this thing could be, uh, that their, their victory could be achieved. Uh, and he was very, 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 very tough on the Russians, saying they don't care how many dead Russian soldiers there are. They don't even know their names. He says, the Ukrainians, we know the names of every Ukrainian soldier who was killed in Bakhmut or other places where this war continues. Thanks, Wolf. Can't wait to watch it. Thank you, Wolf. And you can Thank see you. his full interview tonight. As Zan was saying, we all want to see more. You'll see the entirety of the interview 9 p.m. Eastern tonight right here on CNN Primetime. Also, in just a few hours from now, the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Capitol Hill is going to hold its first hearing on the U.S. exit from Afghanistan in 2021. The Republican-led panel wants to put the Biden administration under the microscope over the plan and the execution of the withdrawal, something Republicans vowed to do if they retook the House majority. Today's hearing, we are told, is going to lean on testimony from volunteers who assisted in that massive evacuation. President Biden, for his part, has long forcefully rejected criticism of the exit and has instead hailed it as an extraordinary success when it came to that massive evacuation in Kabul. I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit. The decision to end the military lift operations at Kabul airport was based on the unanimous recommendation of my civilian and military advisors. Joining us now is a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee and a former Green Beret who served in Afghanistan, Republican Congressman Michael Waltz. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Sure. And I know that you and your staff were deeply involved in assisting with these evacuations at the time. What specifically, what information are you looking to find out today? Hey, Caitlin, you're going to hear today from these veterans, volunteer groups, these grassroots organizations that had to stand up in a vacuum, frankly, that found themselves as private citizens getting call after call, desperate plea from people they had fought alongside, our Afghan allies, and from Americans that were being left behind during the withdrawal. And they found themselves chartering planes, arranging international flights, arranging country clearances, coordinating safe houses to avoid the Taliban that were hunting these people down. Uh, and you're gonna hear the outrage from them. You're going to hear how they felt betrayed by their own government, their, their phenomenal frustration uh, with the State Department who just wasn't getting the job done. Uh, and you're also going to hear from these veterans, many of them who have exhausted their personal savings, their kids' 529 plans are going into divorce because they refuse to ever leave 
a comrade behind. And then finally, Kate, you're going to hear from uh, a Marine sniper and an Army medic who were at Abbey Gate. You're going to hear about the Afghans that were throwing themselves on barbed wire to commit suicide rather than to go out back to the Taliban. Uh, and that one of these snipers actually had the Abbey Gate bomber in his sight and was not given permission to take him out. And now we have 13 more dead service members. So today is about accountability. Today is about answers. Even as I say this, I'm getting upset uh, and, and frustrated. Uh, and all of this has been boiling up for the last two years. And finally, these veterans, these Marines and, and soldiers that had to endure this uh, are going to have an outlet today. They're going to be heard. And the entire community that was involved in this, I think, will be channeling their frustration through these heroes that we're going to hear from today. Yeah, I mean, we all watched it play out in real time, seeing these stories, witnessing what you're talking about there. When it comes to the GOP criticism overall of the Biden administration's exit when they left, you know some of the pushback that you're going to get from the White House is in part talking about how they believed the stage was in part set because of the agreement that was signed by the Trump administration in Doha with the Taliban. What are, what's your response to that? Hey, that is such, I, I'm so sick of that excuse. The Biden administration had no problem walking away from the Paris Accords, uh, the Trump administration's policy on Iran, Title 42, uh, or the remain in Mexico on the border. We can go down the long list of Trump policies that they walked away from. Yet on this one, we want to believe that their hands were tied. I don't buy it for a second. And I've got to tell you, you're going to hear today from these veterans who are so morally injured to hear their commander in chief, rather than say we could have done this better, we could have done better uh, uh, in, in this withdrawal, that this was just an outstanding success. It's politics and spin at its worst when so many people are dead and those Gold Star families deserve accountability and they haven't had a single question answered by this administration and come hell or high water, we're gonna get it for them. Yeah, well, I mean, we do hear from them that that is something they believe that they had to, to commit to, something President Biden has said. Also, I think you mean rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. I want to move on, though, because yeah. you have introduced right. a joint resolution giving the, the you want to give the president the authority to use the U.S. military against cartels in Mexico. Sure. How do you envision that actually working? What does that look like? Is that boots on the ground? You know, what's the per, what's the point of that? No, it looks like. Look like? Yeah, it, it, we, we've done this before, Caitlin. We did it in the 1990s against the Medellin and Cali cartels. It looks like the tremendous supporting assets that the, only the military has, offensive cyber to start disrupting the cartel networks, uh, tools that can begin going after their money, disrupting their logistics, targeting their leadership, intelligence, space, and other types of packets, that uh, uh, assets that law enforcement doesn't have access to, and we want to provide that authority. We've got, we have to start thinking about these cartels more like ISIS rather than the mafia. And if ISIS and Al-Qaeda, through chemical warfare, killed 70 to 80,000 Americans, we would be again thinking about this and attacking it far differently. So that's what we're looking to, uh, that's what we're looking to do. We're, we want to give those authorities to the president if only he would take more meaningful action to go after these cartels that are behind the human trafficking, the fentanyl, and right now effectively control our border and 30 to 40% of Mexico by some estimates. We cannot have an ungoverned narco-terrorist state 
uh, right there on our border and do nothing. And for the Mexican government standpoint, we did this with the Colombians as well. We sent a message, we're gonna do this with or without you. Eventually the Colombian government got on board in the 90s and I believe the Mexican government will too. Yeah, we'll see what the White House, their response on that. They've said that they are working on those investigations when it comes to the citizens and what we've seen, the two that were killed, the two that were have been returned to U.S. soil. I want to also ask you about something that we saw some of your fellow Republican colleagues responding to yesterday, which is after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy gave Fox News access to 40,000 hours of footage at, at the Capitol on January 6th. Fox then uh, portrayed it, saying that they were essentially mostful pe mostly peaceful chaos sightseers. Is that how you saw what happened that day? Yeah, look, I was on the House floor. It was a riot. Uh, and and pe anyone who injured a police officer or committed a crime uh, should be prosecuted. I also believe we should have full transparency that day. And I believe Speaker McCarthy is giving those uh, videos to multiple outlets. I think the American people need to see everything that happened, not things that were selectively edited to tell a political narrative by a highly politicized uh, uh, committee, Caitlin. So look, everybody's going to see what happened. And in some places in the Capitol, it was an absolute riot and terrible and disgusting. And then, then in, why in some places were the police just waving people in and then actually escorting them? So I think we also had a, a, a breakdown in security protocols that we need to fully understand. And I have no issue with everybody seeing these videos on, on that terrible day. So are you calling on Speaker McCarthy to give it to everyone? Because so far he has not provided it to multiple media outlets. Uh, I, I, think it should be, I think it should be released across the board. I want to ask you about something former President Trump said as well. He called on the January 6th defendants to be released. He said they were convicted or awaiting trial, saying that they were uh, done so on based on a giant lie. What is your response to what President Trump is calling on to well, happen? Well, look, I, I, as I just said, folks who committed, people who committed a crime should be prosecuted, but we also have due process in this country. And when some of them have been held for months or over years now uh, without going through some type of due process, that is incredibly concerning. Uh, and then further, you have people that, uh, you know, for example, I had two 72-year-old twins, they came by their, my office and prayed. They were never even near the Capitol that day, and they have been hounded and harassed uh, by the FBI. They have this cloud hanging over them. Their reputations have been damaged. We have case after case like that, uh, and, and that's not due process or, or justice either. So look, if you committed a crime, if you hurt a law enforcement officer, uh, if you were participated in a riot, you should be prosecuted, but we have, we have a Fourth Amendment. Uh, and, and they deserve due process as well. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone's arguing they shouldn't have due process, but Trump was saying but yet that- yeah, we have people that are been... sitting in jail in D.C., pretrial detention for over a year. Uh, why is that? And I think that's what a lot of people are calling for. They're, they're, they're asking those questions, and those are fair questions to ask. Yeah, but Trump's argument was about also people who have been convicted of crimes from that day. Uh, Congressman Mike Waltz, we will be watching your hearing today. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. More on our top story this morning. Two Americans killed in Mexico after being kidnapped at gunpoint. Two others survived. The family of one of the survivors will join us live next. Two Americans returning to the U.S. from Mexico after their group was kidnapped last Friday. They had traveled there so that Latavia Washington McGee could undergo a medical procedure. 
Now, McGee is back in Texas this morning, uninjured. Eric Williams was shot three times in the leg. Uh, the two others who were kidnapped, Shahid Woodward, Woodard, I should say, and Zendel Brown, were sadly killed. I want to bring in now Barbara McLeod Burgess. She is Latavia Washington McGee's mother. Also with us is Amani Washington, Latavia's 13-year-old daughter, and along with Latavia's sons, Cadence McGee and Junior, they are joining us for their first live interview. Um, and I, I'm, I'm happy that you guys are here to bring light to this. I'm sorry about what happened. Uh, Barbara, good morning to you and everyone. Have you spoken to Latavia? And if so, how is she doing? Good morning. She was doing okay. I talked to her last night. What'd you guys talk about? And I asked how she was doing. She was telling me that how they, they was hostile and how they had it in uh, that little place and it was stank with the, um, her um, brother in there and all of them was hostile and little thing together. And they were moving up from place to place. Did she understand? Did they understand what was happening to them at the time? No, because she said when there was... Um, had drove that was going through and a van, they were driving through and a van came up and hit them and that's when they started shooting at the car, shooting inside the van or whatever. And I guess that she said the other rest tried to run and they got shot at the same time. Yeah. Shahid and um, Zell and E, they all got shot at the same time. And she watched them, she watched them die. And you helped to raise Shaid, right, who died. Can you tell us about yes. him? Yes. Yes. I had, I had, his mother had passed away um, when he was like 15, and I had him ever since then. And Latavia, it was, he was in the house, and so she took him as his brother, her brother, which is her cousin. But it's her brother and her cousin. It's my nephew and my son. And he was a, um, he was a good um, person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I miss him. I love him. And nothing I wouldn't do for him. Did you, were you watching, did you see the video of, uh, on the news? Yes. And what was going through your head when you saw it? What? A lot of bad stuff. Bad stuff. Okay. Imani? When they threw my daughter on that church, that's where... Go on, Barbara. Sorry, yes. you were saying what? No, sir. Especially when I saw them throw my daughter up on that truck and shot on it. They just grab them and throw them up on like, like trash. They throw them on the trucks. And I didn't, I didn't like it. And I wanted to get to her. Amani. Get over there to her. Amani, you saw it. You must have been worried about your mom. What were you thinking? Uh, I was just thinking, like, why did they get kidnapped and stuff like that? Yeah. Do you guys, do either of you know about what happened and why? Because they, they believe at this point that is a case of mistaken identity. Um, have they told you anything beyond that? Have you spoken to authorities at all, Barbara? About the kidnapping? Yes, ma'am. I talked to um, I talked to um, someone that was to ask me a question about when it first I guess after day two after it happened and he was asking me something about it and I told him 
He was asking me a question about Latavia and that she was in danger. What are you hoping comes out of this? I know I can't bring, no one can bring your loved ones back, but what are you hoping happens from here, Barbara? I hope they um, get all of them and, and put them all in jail. The one that did it. Um, put all of them, every one of them that has something to do with it, I want them locked up. Amani, did you, have you had a chance to speak to your mom? Yes. What did you talk about? Uh, I was, all I did was say hey and told her that I missed her and I was ready for her to come home. Listen, I, I don't, um, I, I can't begin to imagine when families go through situations like this and your whole life is sort of put on display in front of everyone. Uh, I know that that is disconcerting, but to have someone die and then get on television and talk about it, uh, at least members of your family, your, your mom and your daughter didn't die, but um, it's got to be tough for you. Can you explain, uh, Barbara, what your family is going through at this moment? All I know is I know that this hurt and that's all. This hurt because of what happened to Shahid and which he died and when they had kidnapped him. So I know this all hurt about everything. This is uh, Barbara. I understand the second time that your daughter went down to the area in Mexico for a medical procedure. Um, did she at any point before say that she felt unsafe? about it? No. No, she didn't. Yeah. She didn't tell me nothing about it. She, um, she was dead. Yeah. Listen, um, the CDC is warning against medical procedures outside of the country. They are calling it a level four warning, the State Department is. Um, do you have a message for other people who may be considering the same thing, Barbara? No, I just wish that I know that for the family member that was you no know, like the other family, I would know that there's um, there's hurt and feeling you no know, sad and stuff about it. Yeah. And some of the people out in America, they probably do too. How are you guys? Are you guys going to go um, to? Are you going to Texas or what, how are you going to do? Is, is is she going to come home, Latavia? Are you going to go see her or is to wait until she comes home? Um, we can wait until she comes home. She's supposed to come home today. Yeah. Monty, anything you want to say before I let you guys go? Because I can see that, um, that JR uh, and Cadence are getting restless. Yeah. Um, all I got to say is that thank you for helping find my mama. Yeah. That's it. I should say junior. So um, thank you so much for joining us, Barbara. Thank you, Amani. Thank you, Cadence. Thank you, Junior. Mm -hmm. You guys be you as welcome. well as you can under these circumstances. Say you're welcome. Yeah. Say so you're welcome. Look, say so you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Poppy. Wow, Don. Thank goodness their mother and, of course, her daughter um, are coming home. Don, thank you for that. Um, ahead of development, the CEO of Starbucks has agreed to testify before the Senate what Senator Bernie Sanders says he wants to hear from Howard Schultz. Plus, a look at how the rise of the Taliban and back in power has impacted girls in Afghanistan on this International Women's Day.
I'm Salma Abdulaziz in London. For the women and girls of Afghanistan, all hopes of a future were shattered by the Taliban takeover. The group has imposed rules that essentially erase women from public life, barring girls and women from secondary and university education, barring them from most workplaces, and ordering females to veil in public. In fact, the United Nations says these draconian rules by the Taliban could amount to a crime against humanity. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, an update this morning on the Howard Schultz, Bernie Sanders back and forth that we have been covering. The Starbucks CEO will now testify before the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee later this month. The company and Senator Sanders announced that agreement yesterday, just a day before Sanders' committee was set to vote on whether they should subpoena Schultz to appear. At issue is Starbucks' resistance to labor unions. Sanders has repeatedly accused Starbucks of engaging in illegal labor practices by refusing to negotiate with union organizers. Starbucks denies that and says they have offered to negotiate in person. They just won't do it over Zoom. Here's what Senator Sanders said he wants to hear from Schultz. I want Mr. Schultz to tell us that at long last he is going to stop his illegal activity, that he's going to sit down with the union and negotiate a contract. Uh, there are some 285 Starbucks stores out of about 9,000 in the U.S. that have voted to unionize. Starbucks has denied all allegations of union busting. When I spoke with Schultz last month, he remained adamant unions are counter to Starbucks' vision. Do you see the union push as an existential threat to the Starbucks that you built? No, it is not an existential okay. threat. No, not at all. I recognize the right that Starbucks partners have, a, have the right if they want to try and unionize their store or their district, whatever. But we have a right as a company mm -hmm. to create the vision for the company, which the large, vast majority of Starbucks partners mm -hmm. embraces. Schultz will appear for that testimony March 29th in a statement. Starbucks' top lawyer wrote in part that testimony, quote, will endeavor to provide a deeper understanding of our culture and priorities. Later today, also a new batch of video is going to be released of that deadly police beating of Tyree Nichols. Shimon Prokupes has been on the ground in Memphis covering this. He's going to join us live on what to expect next. Good morning, everyone. This morning, we have the latest on what's happening in Mexico. Two Americans have been rescued, two others found dead after being kidnapped at gunpoint in a dangerous border town in Mexico. We have new details on where they were found and what we are learning about the man who has been detained in connection to their abduction. Plus, a new trove of private emails and text messages exposed drama, division, and alarm behind the scenes of Fox News over the network's coverage of false election conspiracies. And the city of Memphis preparing to release more video from the deadly police beating of Tyree Nichols. We're gonna tell you what we're expecting to see and hear from the new footage. But we begin with that deadly kidnapping of four Americans in Mexico, where officials say that they found two of them alive in the wooden shack that you see here, one with gunshot wounds, the other two found dead. Soldiers with Humvees and machine guns brought the survivors to the border in an ambulance, as you see that here. The rescue comes days after they had been abducted in broad daylight in one of Mexico's most dangerous border towns, 
where rival factions of a drug cartel have been at war in the streets. The video of the abduction is chilling. It shows gunmen dragging and loading the four Americans into a pickup truck. This is Latavia Washington McGee. She was one of the two who was rescued, found alive. Family members say that the group of friends were on just a road trip so Latavia could undergo a medical procedure in Mexico. We spoke to her mother just moments ago. They were driving through and a van came up and hit them and that's when they started shooting at the car, shooting inside the van or whatever. And I guess that since they, the other rest tried to run and they got shot at the same time. Yeah. Shahid and um, Zell and E, they all got shot at the same time. And she watched them, she watched them die. Rosa Flores is in Brownsville, Texas, where the survivors are recovering this morning. Rosa, what were you learning about the timeline here? Because we found out about the abductions. Now we know, obviously, what has happened here with those two Americans back on U.S. soil. What are you seeing about the full picture that happened in between then? You know, Caitlin, we are learning more about some of those intense moments from Mexican officials. You're giving us a, a clearer picture of what happened. They say that the four Americans crossed into Mexico at about 9.18 a.m. on Friday and that they were lost. In fact, they were probably lost for a few hours. According to Mexican officials, the Americans crossed over. Uh, their cell phone service was patchy. They were trying to contact the doctor that uh, the um, Latavia Washington McGee was expected to go see. Um, that doctor was trying to give them directions. And that dramatic video was actually taken at 11.45 a.m., which means it was several hours after they crossed the border and that they had been lost. And if you look closely at, at those dramatic images, you'll see the white minivan that the Americans were driving. And that is what Mexican officials say was the first clue for Mexican officials. The fact that the license plates of that white minivan were from North Carolina, which really begs the question why they waited so long, several days, for the announcement for the FBI to issue uh, a, a statement regarding Americans being kidnapped in Mexico. But what Mexican officials do say is that after that, they used surveillance video and they showed pictures of this surveillance video as they tracked that uh, white pickup truck that uh, that the Americans were were dragged on and, and driven away. According to Mexican officials, that trace went cold after they followed surveillance video. But then yesterday, Tuesday morning, they received a tip. They followed that tip. That led to the Americans and to the arrest of a 24-year-old from Tamaulipas, Mexico, who Mexican officials say uh, that they don't know if he's connected to the criminal gangs or criminal organizations in Mexico. Now, about the Americans, the two Americans who survived, Caitlin, they were brought to the hospital that you see behind me for treatment. Uh, and the other two Americans who died, uh, they are still in Mexico. They're undergoing an autopsy. And of course, the FBI and the Department of State working to bring them back to the United States and reunite them with their families. Caitlin. Yeah. And so much of this is going to put a focus on those cartels and the security relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. Rosa Flores, when you learn more about the autopsies, please let us know. Thank you. Well, hundreds of pages of previously unreleased documents in Dominion's $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox News are now public. 
This huge trove includes emails and text messages from top executives and talent that further reinforced that they did not believe the false claims about election fraud that they were still pushing on air. Even Rupert Murdoch himself admitted in an email to the CEO of Fox News that the hosts of his network went too far in pushing Trump's lies. He describes a meeting with Republican lawmakers writing this, quote, big morning with McConnell meeting with Graham and other anti-impeachers, but still getting mud thrown at us. Is it unarguable that high-profile Fox voices fed the story that the election was stolen and that January 6th was an important chance to have the results overturned? Maybe Sean and Laura went too far. All well for Sean to tell you that he was in despair about Trump, but what did he tell his viewers? Close quote. Now, these documents also include a bunch of text messages between Fox host Tucker Carlson and a member of his staff in which he actually says and details his disdain for former President Trump. He writes, quote, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. I hate him passionately. I blew up at Peter Navarro today in frustration. I actually like Peter, but I can't handle much more of this. That's the last four years. We're all pretending we've got a lot to show for it because admitting what a disaster it's been is too tough to digest. But come on, there isn't really an upside to Trump. Close quote. Those are the words of Tucker Carlson. Hmm. Wow. Joining us now, Ken Turkel. He has represented several high-profile clients in defamation lawsuits, including probably most famously the case you won, Ken, against Gawker for Hulk Hogan. Uh, that was in 2016, and that was really precedent-setting, right? Because you guys were able to overcome a high bar against a media organization. What does this do to Fox? Yeah. Does this put Fox in more peril? When we say this, uh, in looking at what's been released, there's an awful lot of documentary evidence, text messages, emails, quite a bit to digest. Um, breaking it down, the, the thoughts that I have are, first, you rarely see that much paper in one of these cases. Um, uh, internal messaging rooms, things like that. But there's so much here, so much communication. And then you have this uh, emerging testimony of Rupert Murdoch, which is dynamite. It's actually uh, tremendous evidence for a jury trial. It's it's storytelling, uh, I think, in their opposition to the summary judgment motion that uh, Fox filed uh, Dominion started with an excerpt from that testimony, because it really is, you know, at the end of the day, we tell stories and the stories have to make sense and they have to be compelling and persuasive. It's a great story lead in, but there's really no legal impact to it from an actual malice perspective because the law is always going to focus on the mindset or what I like to call the undisclosed mental process of the speaker. And that's what usually makes these cases so hard is you're trying to prove what someone was thinking, what they knew when there is rarely uh, any direct evidence of that. What is interesting about this case right now, uh, keeping in mind that Judge Davis already uh, – denied a motion to dismiss. And I think the legal issues are going to stay the same. We're dealing with summary judgment. Is there a dispute material fact? And rarely do you see this much clear indication that a broadcaster, a writer, uh, was disclosing their state of mind, uh, directly disclosing it. I don't believe this. Then you have a report that's to the contrary. Fascinating. So, Very right. different. With all of that said, then... I does it say anything to you that there has not been a settlement at this point? Because usually 
at this point, especially considering they said so much paper and depositions and all that, usually that'd be, you know, let's get this behind us. We don't want this much disclosed about our company. It's sort of a different world. Uh, in these bigger cases, I can tell you my own experience, having had to try uh, Hogan, which was really a privacy case with a bad First Amendment defense, right? Uh, but implicated all these issues. And Palin, I mean, I didn't settle those. They went to trial. The question really is, what is the end game here? What is Dominion looking for? Because so often in these cases, it's vindication, reputational rehabilitation, clear retraction with unambiguous language that we lied, things like that. They also have a pretty robust damages case with a nice business damages element for lost profits and lost enterprise value. But the question really is, what's their end game? That's always the issue. What is the client's goal? I would not be surprised if this thing went to trial. You wouldn't be surprised if what? I, I said I would not be surprised if this went to trial, given the way the litigation's proceeded. Tom Clare, uh, who is uh, the lead counsel for uh, Dominion, is a, you know, an excellent attorney. I know Tom. I would not be surprised if, if they try this case. It's really an issue of what is the goal? But Ken, what quickly, are they looking for? Quickly before you go, are they, I mean, the idea though that they're actually going to get $1.6 billion seems unreal, unrealistic when you talk to people about this case. What do you think? I looked at their damages breakdown and it's an interesting model. They have lost profits, 600 million. They have a lost enterprise, lost business value. When you have business damages like that, which I had in part in Hogan, not the same kind, very different type of damages, that gives you a baseline number. They're not crazy numbers. Um, you know, if you assume they're going to have experts that can prove up those business damages, right? Forensic accountants. So um, not crazy. You this never know until you get in the courtroom. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this is about money, though. I think it's about something else. I, I tend yeah. to agree. Yeah. I, I think there's a little more going on here. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. Good to see you again. I appreciate yeah, it. I think, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, y'all. Have a good day. All right, you too. So uh, this morning, more than 20 hours of new video set to be released relating to the brutal police beating death of Tyree Nichols in January. It comes as officials reveal that a seventh Memphis police officer has now been fired. Five have been criminally charged. Person following this for us, of course, Shimon Prokopes joins me now. Shimon, uh, good morning to you. So what can we expect to see in this new video? Well, it's going to be a lot of the officers. It's about 20 hours of video. It's going to be the after effects, some of the officers talking uh, about what happened, some of the other officers who we see later on arriving on scene. Significant also, and there is video of actually Tyree's mother talking to one of the officers, Officer Hemphill. Uh, he's the officer who... Uh, use this taser. Uh, she comes to the scene where the car is stopped mm. and she has a conversation with this officer. Uh, so that video we do expect to see. And he explains sort of what happened to her and how Tyree had this super strength. Uh, and her response to that is going to be certainly interesting and something that we're going to want to hear about and see. There's going to be some video of perhaps what ultimately led up to this stop of Tyree Nichols. Uh, and then just the officers talking. Look, there's still a lot more that needs to come out about this. And I think the Memphis Police Department, now that their internal investigation, they investigated 13 officers. That's a lot of police officers. Of course, seven now being fired, others being suspended. So there's still a lot that we need to learn and a lot more information and documents that they say are going to come out. And we're going to learn more, perhaps, 
about exactly everything that sort of led up to this and what the officers were saying afterwards. I think the big question, though, is does it lead to more charges? Right. That we there is uh, the district attorney is certainly considering charges against that one other officer, Officer Hemphill. He's the, the white officer who we hear saying, you know, stomp his ass, and then he uses the taser. So that is someone certainly that is in the crosshairs of the district attorney, and, that, and we could potentially see charges. Um, a total of about seven or so officers are under criminal investigation. So we'll see if more. And also there's a Department of Justice investigation and whether or not they're going to bring criminal charges against these officers for civil rights violations. So there's still a lot. But also, you know, the other thing that's what's happening here, this community um, really besieged by crime. Crime is a significant issue uh, in this community, and they were asking for police to do more. But last night, the city council, there's a new ordinance now in place as a result of this where unmarked police vehicles can no longer do crime stop, uh, can no longer do car stops. This is beyond the Scorpion. Right. So if you're an undercover car, unmarked car Uh in in the city of Memphis, you are no longer allowed to pull over vehicles unless there's some kind of exigent circumstance. So it's going to change how policing is going to need to be done there in the city. Significant stuff. It is. Huge. Superhuman strength, really? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Shimon. Thanks, Shimon. All right, also this morning from China to Mexico to communities right here in the United States, our David Culver is going to take a look at the border and how fentanyl and the products that are laced with it actually make their way into the United States. That's right, Caitlin. It starts with going to where it's being made, and that's on the other side of this border in Mexico. So we head to a place that's known as cartel country. Incredibly dangerous, but we go along with the Mexican army And you're going to see, as you join us, how they're going about this, how they're trying to crack down, and all the obstacles they're facing on the ground there. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. There's so many families out there who have kids struggling. I mean... After COVID, the crisis, the, you know, the, the, the phones, the social media, all that stuff. So, yes, absolutely did he struggle, for sure. Um, but fentanyl, it was something I had heard of, but not, it, not something I would have ever thought would have killed our, ch- our child, ever. That's a mom who's feeling like so many other parents across the United States. She was speaking at CNN's town hall with Anderson Cooper last night that was focused on fentanyl about her son's death and her family's experience with the devastating fentanyl crisis here in America. It has claimed more than 200,000 lives over the last two years. You can see many of the victims here, so many of them in their 20s and 30s. It is affecting communities nationwide, known for its extreme potency. Fentanyl is not only one of the most dangerous opioids that is found on the streets today, it's also one of the cheapest. CNN's David Culver is live on the U.S.-Mexico border. Obviously, David, this has such a focus on where this comes from. We were just talking to Republican Congressman Michael Waltz about this and the frustrations there. You've been tracing the path of fentanyl and where it goes from Chinese chemical factories, how it makes its way to Mexican drug bust. What is that line there? What does it look like? Yeah, so Caitlin, the biggest frustration in, in trying to answer this question, how do you stop the flow, especially when it comes over borders like the one right behind me, is trying to figure out where it starts. As you point out, the chemicals, the ingredients that are used to make fentanyl, they come from China, so that's a big player in all this. But so too is Mexico, just south of the border, and what law enforcement there are doing. Now, the Mexican army and the military as a whole, as well as local law enforcement in Mexico, they face a lot of allegations of corruption, that they're just not doing enough. The Mexican army told us 
that's not true, that they are doing something. We said, show us. Here's where they took us. Culiacan, in the state of Sinaloa, cartel country, as some see it. Here, the Mexican army is on the hunt for drug labs. With 50 soldiers and in a convoy of six armored vehicles, we travel out of Culiacan into a rural and mountainous landscape. U.S. officials estimate fentanyl makes Mexico's criminal organizations billions of dollars each year. The cartels, determined to eliminate anyone or anything that might threaten their profit. Colonel Alfredo González Cuevas, our guide. Y vamos a ver que... El lugar donde se, uh... Taking us to the scene of their latest fentanyl bust. They're securing the perimeter right now. Days earlier, he says cartel members opened fire on him and his soldiers. He said they started shooting at them, hitting the vehicles, and then the four guys started running. The Army's intel led them to this unassuming home in a quiet, family-friendly neighborhood. That white building right there, that's the fentanyl lab. The Army says they seized 270,000 pills here, all containing fentanyl. He said they had all sorts of machines to make the pills. In his nearly 35 years in the Army, working to dismantle drug operations, the colonel tells me fentanyl has been far more devastating and difficult to control than cocaine, heroin, and meth. They test substances to know what exactly they're seizing. So it shows it here. It's a breakdown of what the chemical is and what makes it up. And then it even has here listed the hazmat component to it. Crucial in understanding how fentanyl is made is knowing where the chemicals are sourced. A lot of them, he says, come from the port, which came in from Asia. Higher ranking military officials have told us most of them come from China. China's vast chemical industry is where experts say many of the ingredients to manufacture fentanyl, known as precursors, are sourced. And with worsening U.S.-China relations, working with Chinese officials to stop the flow, increasingly challenging. With China, it's, it's extremely difficult because you don't get information from them. You don't get cooperation from them. So Matt Donahue worked for the DEA for more than three decades, retiring last year as its deputy chief of foreign operations. Mexico is intentionally making these drugs, knowing they're killing Americans, and still shipping them up there without putting anyone in jail without seizing any properties or going after all their drug assets. High-ranking Mexican officials adamantly push back on that claim. Instead, they point to the U.S. to do more on its soil, a sentiment echoed by China. On Monday, the foreign ministry responding to our questions, saying in part, the accusation by some people from the U.S. that China is not further controlling the export of fentanyl precursors because of geopolitical influence is a desecration of the spirit of the rule of law and is completely groundless. Adding, using China as a scapegoat will not solve the drug crisis in the United States. Back in Culiacan, the army keeps a presence at these busted labs 24-7, preserving the scenes for prosecutors and preventing cartel members from restarting production. They also conduct random inspections at package facilities around Culiacan, searching for fentanyl and the precursor chemicals needed to make it even setting up checkpoints, working to prevent the distribution of drugs made here. Wow, he said in, in one of the searches, for example, it's not uncommon to find that fentanyl or other drugs will be stashed in places like the car wheel or within the car, but even in the gas tank. Fentanyl, it, it, it's sad, it's dirt cheap. You know, you can take a life, 
for probably five cents, 10 cents, what it costs them to make a pill that they're charging $15 for. I mean, what's a, what's a human life worth now? Just days after our visit, Mexican army officials sent us this video. From the back room of this small home, they seized 600,000 fentanyl pills, countless lives potentially saved. But the cartel-fueled production is seemingly endless. And so, too, the devastation that awaits. Where we are live this morning is a pretty significant part of the seizure process. In fact, out of all the fentanyl that is seized nationally in this country, more than half come from this district in the San Diego area. And let me show you this, Caitlin. This was just from last week. It shows you just how potent some of these busts could potentially be. And you're looking at 232 pounds of fentanyl that were seized, worth about $3 million. Three people were arrested for bringing it over. But this has the potential, according to U.S. law enforcement, to kill 50 million people. I mean, that's basically combining the populations of New York State and Texas. It's significant. Yeah, it's incredibly significant. It's every parent's worst nightmare. David Culver, that's a fantastic look at what actually happens behind the scenes. Thank you for that reporting. Wow, I can't wait to see more of his investigation into this. All right, six near collisions, smoke-filling cabins, a passenger threatening to stab a flight attendant going after them. So many scares recently in the air. We'll be joined by a pilot to talk about what the FAA can do about it. Six close calls in just two months. There have been six reported near collisions on airport runways across the country this year alone. And it is prompting new investigations and a sweeping review. 2172, going around. American 2172, Roger. Middle land four, right, JetBlue 206. JetBlue 206, all right. 206, five, runway heading, maintain 3000. Runway heading up to, uh, sorry, what's sitting on the altitude? 3000. 3000, JetBlue 206. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Rejecting. So those close calls, coupled with scary incidents inside the plane's cabin, raises a big question this morning. What is happening within the aviation industry? Joining us now is the spokesman for Allied Pilots Association, Dennis Tager. Thank you for joining us, sir. We appreciate it. So uh, according to the FAA, Serious incursions, uh, which is a collision that's nearly avoided, seem to have gone down over the last two decades. Are we seeing an uptick now with this? Well, we're seeing a system that is under stress. Pilots across the nation have well over a year have been talking about this. We've got airlines scheduling us to the maximums. They're reducing pilot training. Uh, they are basically running along a barbed wire fence right up to the maximums, and we shouldn't be surprised when we see these safety seals start to leak. We've seen reliability uh, gone down uh, the drain, and uh, that's recovered a bit. But pilots across the nation are saying you're trying to do too much with too little. And the FAA has now called for a safety summit, which is great, but it's time for actions and not just words. Just to be clear, are we seeing an uptick or is this standard? Uh, because same thing with, you know, cell phone cameras. Sometimes we see incidents um, more. We feel like we're seeing more because they are on camera. I'm just wondering, are we seeing more or are we just reporting about it more? No, it's happening more. I mean, we're seeing it. It's, it's evidence. You've played the tapes. And by the way, in those tapes, you have pilots, two highly trained 
experienced and well-rested pilots that are making the difference between an incident and an accident. And I'd like to hit on one thing. One of those incidents, a FedEx aircraft went around. They saw what was happening before they were going to land on a Southwest aircraft during low weather. Those two pilots did the right thing. They made it work. But here's the deal. They're actually, they fly under different safety and rest rules. It's called a cargo carve-out. It's these types of things that are going on in the industry that the public doesn't know about. And responsibility lies right with the FAA. Folks who fly net jets, a business, uh, um, the executive jets, they fly it on another set of rules. We're flying in the same airspace. Mm. So this has got yeah. to stop and be aligned. I think you make such an important point. Um, carve-outs where, well, if you're not flying people, you're flying cargo, you have to have less rest and things like that, right? You're all in the air at the same time. Uh, you said at the, in your first answer, we're doing this with too little of something. What does that mean? What do you need to make it safe for all of us up there? What we need is for the airlines, the FAA, to do their job. You know, we sent a letter to the FAA uh, back in June saying that our particular airline was reducing the frequency of training and the quantity of training at just the wrong time. And we have all these new pilots coming in. They're experienced, but they're not seasoned in this operation. So the FAA responded to us. Believe it or not, well, what they're doing isn't illegal. So if it's legal, good to go. Well, we have a saying on the flight deck, just because it's legal does not mean it's safe and smart. Mm. And, and, I, and I would like to add one more thing to go further. For five years, we've been waiting to get a secondary barrier before the flight deck mm -hmm. door. There's legislation. It's done. And uh, we're still waiting for that. And I'm thinking about that passenger that became unhinged and, and attacked the flight attendant. The fact that we're talking about this now, how many years after 9-11 and we can't get this done because of pushback by the airlines, not wanting to spend a couple extra bucks, the price of a seat back entertainment center is, is beyond belief. Um, it's time to get this done. You know, they're making record revenue right now, airlines. It is time for record responsibility to our passengers and pilots will make sure that happens. But we get a little weary having to fight this every turn. Um, but we're hopeful that the safety summit uh, may make a difference. But um, it's not going to be a comfortable space because we're fighting for our passenger safety. That's everything. Yeah, you seem quite frustrated with the FAA. We'll be paying close attention to that. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Take care. All right, also today, from Iran to Afghanistan, even Ukraine, on this International Women's Day, we are highlighting the challenges that women are facing across the globe. No one better than Christian Amanpour here in studio to discuss with us. Oh, there she is. Here. All right, take a look at this. This is a look at protests in Jakarta, Indonesia, and Manila earlier this morning on this International Women's Day. This year's theme is embracing equity. There's still so many places in the world that aren't even close to that, by the way, when it comes to gender, as evidenced by the wave of protests led by Iranian women following the 22-year-old death of Masha Amini, who died in police custody there. Also in Afghanistan, groups of young girls protesting outside of Kabul University as their male classmates returned to class this week. This video shared on social media shows girls sitting on the ground and reading books. In December, the Taliban banned female students from attending university, so who better to talk to about all of this that holds men to account. 
chills everyone to account. <laughs> everyone to account. Yeah. I'm thinking men because of the Iranian foreign minister and oh, everything yes. you just did that so was brilliantly. Something. Is our chief international anchor, Christian Amanpour. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Happy International Women's Day. Yeah, Happy International Women's Happy Day. International Love having you here. Yeah. All the time that you spent around the world over the years, but especially this year, you know, the theme is embracing equity. But it's not even there to embrace in so many places yet. Yes and no. You know, I like to look at solutions and I like to look at the light in the darkness. So we've had a lot of darkness this year, as you mentioned, from Iran to Afghanistan, where the full weight of the states there have come down on the backs of women and especially young women, girls who just want to go to school. And of course, Ukraine, where women and girls amongst... Of course, the whole population is suffering so much because of this relentless war that Russia started. But you just opened this segment talking about the protests and marches in Indonesia, the world's biggest, most populous Muslim country, where they are able to come out onto the streets and, you know, celebrate their rights, demand more rights and do all these kinds of things. I also have... Um, sources who have told me that in Afghanistan, which has literally the world's most draconian anti-girl and anti-women policies established under the Taliban over the last several months, that they know, the Kabul group of Taliban leaders know that they cannot continue like this. And they are trying to convince the fundamentalist religious leaders who live in Kandahar, you know, the, 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 the Muslim fundamentalists there, that denying girls education is not Islamic and it's not good for Afghanistan. So that is moving in the a push. way, yeah, the push in Iran where girls actually have had plenty of rights in education and to vote and to work. Their legal rights are, are minimal. There you've seen this outpouring in this movement, which is currently being pressured and crushed, but still girls are not giving up, giving up the fight. What you said about Afghanistan is really it remarkable. Really Do you really is. think we could see change there? I don't know how fast because it is like molasses. Mm. But when you see an outright open split amongst the Taliban, which has never happened before, where you have the person I interviewed, the head of the Taliban, Siraj Haqqani, back in, uh, in May, told me then, and he's now gone and told the fundamentalist leaders, that he and his group of actual ministers in Kabul do not believe in this draconian crackdown on basic fundamental girls' and women's rights. And then more importantly, he said, we are under pressure from our, our country, from our people. That doesn't no normally get said between and amongst the Taliban. And on top of everything else, they say that they put it to the so-called ulema, in other words, a, a group of, of religious scholars. And even they have told the, the fundamentalist leadership in Kandahar that that, you know, cracking down on women and their right to education and work is not in the Quran. Mm. This is, in that part of the world, yeah. significant. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see whether it leads to anything and we have to hold them to account as the international community is doing. But you can see that women themselves from the grassroots are refusing to be denied in this way. We were popping to the... the Fascinating interview with a, a woman leader this morning. And after the interview, we talked about, you know, there are so many places around the world where there have been women leaders who, yeah. are, who are running the country. Yeah, yeah. But not in the, the biggest democracy in the world. What, Christiane, 
Well, is, don't look at me. On? I'm not an American citizen. I know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you have ideas. I'm of sure course, you have thoughts. It is crazy. And you can ask any female who's run for the highest office in this country how they feel being compared to other lesser, you know, evolved democracies in the world which have actually had women leaders, all the way from Pakistan to England. And now, right. if you look at the North European leaders, uh, Kaya Kallas, who just scored a, a... She's a very important prime minister, particularly around the Ukraine war. She's the prime minister of Estonia. She just won a major election. Uh, Sana Marin, the prime minister in Finland, all these young, very dynamic and very powerful women who are holding to account the world's professed support for Ukraine. And, and it's incredible to see how many women are standing up in this crucial moment right now where democracy is at stake. Yeah. And they are some of the toughest people saying, don't give up this fight. We have to win this fight for democracy because it's also about women, children, and, and the whole society. And they're also leading so differently. I mean, you see, they get a different kind of criticism than other world leaders. Always. They're criticized for dancing or for going out or whatever. I asked Sanamari that because yeah. she was criticized. I said, how is it possible that in 2023, you were criticized for being a human being? Right? And she says, don't worry, I've been, I've been dancing since. <laughs> uh, but women do also, let's face it, Jacinda Ardern, she said, you know, I have no more in the tank. Nicola Sturgeon, the head of the Scottish uh, Nationalists, she said, I can't go on anymore. There is, as you say, a different and unacceptable pressure that is put on, women's, on, on women leaders, holding them to very different standards. And also the, the weight of misogyny and everyday sexism is something in our part of the world even in our part of the world, in the West, in the de democracies, is still something that women have to deal with uh, across the board. Yeah. It's always a pleasure to see the you. The fight Christina. is not over. It's never over. Mm -mm. It's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you. It's Thank such you. good. We, got, we have you here in studio. It's, it's a pleasure always to be bumping to you in the field Ukraine. in some foreign, yes. dangerous place. Well, you but, know, I go out there, yeah. I do yeah. the and reporting, I bring it back here. <laughs> Keep to the studio. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Christina. Thank you right. so much. Thank you. So, boy meets Congress. Actor Ben Savage is ready to run for office? Harry Enson explains why this morning's number is 30. Is he 30? No, he's kind of older. Way older than 30. Look, I don't know anything about being president, okay? I wouldn't have a clue. I'm not somebody special. I'm just an average guy like all of you. The simple, hard-working... Students who struggle day after day <laughs> with too much homework, unfair teachers, and an antiquated justice system that relies too much on detention. That was Corey Matthews announcing his run for the eighth grade class president in the 1995 episode of Boy Meets World. Now the actor who actually played Corey Matthews, Ben Savage, has announced he's actually running for Congress in real life. Savage is running as a Democrat for the seat that is currently held by California Congressman Adam Schiff, who has announced he is running for Senate to replace Dianne Feinstein, who's retiring. So how common is it for actors or celebrities, entertainers to run for Congress? CNN's senior data reporter has been crunching the numbers. Mm. Uh, all right, so what's he, which, which district is he running for? Right, so this morning's number is 30, because Ben Savage is running for Congress in California's 30th congressional district. And let me just tell you, Caitlin, I've never felt so old as to see that Corey <laughs> Matthews was running for Congress. Look how old he looks. He still looks there. pretty young, though. I, I think he looks older than I remember him. I remember him in the sixth grade in that show. Um, 
But I think this is an interesting trend line, right? Because you might say with Donald Trump being president, now obviously Ben Savage running for Congress, you might say, okay, it seems like there are a lot of entertainers who are in Congress or running for Congress or running for office right now. But in fact, the trend line, look at this, entertainers serving in the House of Reps. Look back in 1981, it was 11. In 1991, it was 10. Then it dropped to one in 2001, a little rebound to two in 2011, but zero in 2021. So the trend line has actually been towards Fewer entertainers serving in the Congress, not more, which surprised me. He's running as a Democrat. Which party, though, typically has uh, more slubs? Yeah, so uh, look, the most entertainers serving in the House at once since 1977. So Democrats had eight back in 1991. Republicans at their peak had five in both 1981 to 1993. And, you know, there have been Sonny Bono was a Republican. Bob Dornan, who actually ran for president, was a Republican. Democrats might include someone like Ben Jones from the Dukes of Hazard, right, served down in Georgia. So there have been on both sides of the aisle, but there have been more Democrats than Republicans. But I'll point out that the most successful celeb politicians yeah, were Republicans. Right. Ronald Reagan, Donald Trump. Arnold Schwarzenegger, remember when he ran for governor? That was the biggest thing in the whole world. There was an explosion back in 2003, announcing it on Jay Leno, The Tonight Show. So, you know, there is a history of both sides of having politicians who were, in fact, celebrities. But I will point out something to you, Caitlin, which is not all celebrities who run win. So (laughs) I know, right? It turns out that it doesn't necessarily translate. So some unsuccessful celebrity politicians, Clay Aiken recently, Shirley Temple, right? She was a child star. Then, in fact, she was an ambassador, I believe. And, of course, the drink named after her, Cynthia Nixon. And, of course, Memon Oz just lost in Pennsylvania. So a celeb might give you a boost up in name recognition, but it isn't a guarantee of success at the ballot box. I'm shocked by that. I know. Who would have guessed that, right? When are you running? I, the only thing I'm running for is Popeye's commissioner, okay? Oh, the sandwich The sandwich. The, the, the chicken chain. They have a good sandwich. But yeah, but they're known by their sandwich now, I feel like. Uh, I don't know about that. Okay, we'll do that. We'll okay. crunch those numbers that later. Sounds good, I have one word you. for Don. What? Topanga. I don't know. You were talking about <laughs> boy meets world. Don. I don't. That was. Don! Oh, Don! I was too young for that. Don! You're hurting now. Harry. Don, my heart, my soul. Oh, <laughs> Harry, I've seen like every world. episode Sorry. of that show. Yeah, of course I I've seen it. I did watch the Brady episode. Bunch. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> the Brady Bunch. Okay, wait, we have to move on or else we won't have time for the most important story of the day. Another reason to love my Minnesota Vikings. Wide receiver KJ Osborne and three strangers save a man's life who's trapped inside a burning car. Stay with us for the incredible morning moment. Eating something that, of course, I've never imagined myself being a part of uh, in a million years. And the best for last. Here's your morning moment. Minnesota Vikings receiver K.J. Osborne being called a hero this morning, and rightfully so. Osborne, his Uber driver, and two others sprung into action when they saw a car on fire on the side of the road in Austin, Texas. The four of them were able to free a man trapped inside and bring him to safety. Osborne wrote this in a tweet. Most of the time, the saying goes, wrong place, wrong time. But this time, I believe God had me, us, at the right place, at the exact right time. We helped pull him out the car, but we were still close to the car because the whole time, you know, uh, this car, we had no idea if it was going to blow up. Obviously, that would have been uh, the worst. So, uh, you know, I I picked the guy up and, you know, we walked him, you know, 10, 15 yards away from the car. By then, you know, uh, the the firefighters that came and and the police and everything. And, um, you know, we were able to to rescue him. Right place, right time. Um, You know, I I think, you know, like I said in my tweet, you know, God is real and, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm happy we was able to do it. And t take a look at this. Osborne asked the three other heroes to take this picture after it all happened. He says they're planning to go visit the man at the hospital. Yeah. That's like the plane. You never know what you're going to do in, in that situation. He jumped he right the right in. Thing. Like they did the, the right plane. thing. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. What's the team again? Aha. Uh -huh. yeah, the, they're next year's Super Bowl Crimson champion. Tide. I couldn't remember. Championships, <laughs> the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us this morning. We'll see you again tomorrow. CNN Newsroom starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.